coming up next, the bookending reads, Dracula. scary book oh man that sure was an exciting rendition of toccata and fugue in d major that we just played a little obvious you might be thinking to yourself but we might as well pull out the old toccata and fugue for our discussion on dracula i am nathan alberson your humble and obedient ghost what no (laughs) your humble and obedient host (sighs) Uh, i'm joined today by jake menzel or should I say Jake Mentz Kill? You don't want to find out. No, I don't want to find out. The pastor who's a master of reading. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing well. Excited for part two of our discussion about Dracula? Very excited. And we're also joined by Brandon Chastfiend. <laughs> How are you doing, Brandon? I'm doing well. And you're the PhD ABD. D. As in Dracula. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The very book that we're about to discuss more of. So let's jump right in. What do you guys uh, think we should talk about next? We should talk about... uh, Renfield's an interesting character. Yeah, he's kind of interesting. What do you think about... uh... What do I think about Renfield? What's that sound? (laughs) Oh, it's the sound of the airplane going over our heads. Indicating baggage check, where we talk about what baggage we brought to this novel. Uh, Brandon, what baggage did you bring to this bad boy? I'm not a fan of horror, and I've always looked down on horror. <laughs> That's the baggage <laughs> I brought to this. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Asked and answered. Anything else? No, I really. I've, I've never read it before. Probably the only horror novel I've read is Frankenstein. You've read Edgar Allan Poe, and you probably read the classic short yeah, stories. Yeah, I mean, in Poe, Poe never really did it for me. And so... I got to say this blew past my expectations. It was actually good. I I enjoyed reading Dracula. There we go. I don't know if that's a sign of maturity or a sign of giving up. (laughs) (laughs) I will say to your point about, uh, well, this isn't really to any of your points, but uh, in talking about short stories being, I think a short story is a very natural place for a horror because short stories contain Poe's famous singularity of effect. Mm -hmm. And what you see in Dracula are a lot of really great set pieces that have this story around them and that's the why novels are kind of a weird place for a horror story because you can't sustain that pitch dracula actually does a really nice job of of maintaining that pitch through the first 50 pages or so but then it has to not maintain it through the book it's anyway be that as it may what baggage did you bring jake well i'm with brandon i'm not a big horror fan i've not read any horror novels i have read poe short stories ghost stories stuff like that not seen a lot of horror films either the only film it's not an adaptation the only film representation of of dracula that i i can think i've ever seen is monster squad monster squad yeah Which I've seen many, many times. Which has not the cinema's most effective Dracula, in, in my humble opinion. <laughs> I have to agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I can only assume. That. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> my baggage is I grew up with this book. I read it when I was probably about 12 or 13, and I really responded to it. I really liked it. I, I really liked horror. I was really into it. Uh, I really always liked stories of the uncanny or supernatural, that kind of stuff. I will say, in my defense, as I mentioned earlier, the thing that I really responded to was not Dracula, who seemed pretty just by the book as far as vampires go. I mean, he 
basically is the book as far as vampires go. But the thing that really captured my imagination as a 12 or 13 year old was this story of these these dudes coming together and banding together and uh, conquering evil. I just thought that was really cool. Van Helsing seemed like a really awesome father figure and the idea of like protecting these virtuous, uh, this virtuous lady from a certain doom appealed to me and fired my imagination in, I would say, a, a pretty healthy way, actually. I think there are maybe ways in which I needed to grow past that and hopefully have, but I don't think it was really, I, I think it was a actually good uh, literary experience, I would say, for me at the time. I have seen, I think I figured it out, over 40 Dracula movies, which probably wasn't such a great experience in my life, but uh, that's just movies with the name Dracula, with a character named Dracula in them. I've seen many more vampire movies. I was really into vampires for a long time. I come at it from the opposite perspective. I come at it as vampire connoisseur, if you will. I will say another element of baggage that I brought was a, a real expectation that in line with what we were talking about earlier, that this was going to be very, very sexual and sensual or mm. overtly sensual. And I was concerned about the effect it was going to have on me right? Uh, coming into it. Did you find that that was a valid concern? No, I, I think the scene, I guess we'll get into this later, but the scene that comes the closest to being over the line is obviously the Mina scene, which almost feels like it's out of another novel. It's so, to me at least, uh, potent. The, so, the Jonathan scene is, you know, in a different way. Both of those are, yeah, I mean, I... But the Mina scene is just so rapey and so dark and provocative and her screaming out unclean, unclean and all that kind of stuff is just so powerful that it almost belongs in a different book. It almost, Mm -hmm. you know, that goofy kind of uh, adventure, boys adventure story that I really enjoyed almost gets sidetracked by the kind of raw psychosexual (laughs) power of that particular scene. I don't even remember why I'm saying that, though. Oh, because you expected it to be more of that kind I, of thing. Yeah, I think I'd I'd read or, you know, I knew about, I knew that scene mm-hmm. one way or another, whether I'd read it or what. And I expected a lot of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Turns out that that's the only Mina Harker That's the big one. Scene. And then the, you've got the vampire brides who are kind of sexy or whatever. But right. yeah, I mean, I was expecting more of that, too, because uh, I had seen Coppola's version. Which is... Seen way hyper sexualized and then you have all these other vampire stories so you figure they share something in common with the original source Mm -hmm. and then you get in here and it's very victorian and all about the host right so yeah i mean hollywood uh imagine this hollywood sexed it up a little bit um i mean i know that's hard to imagine from our friends in uh in los angeles that they would do such a thing yeah the the for obvious reasons ever since the silent film actually not since the silent film days because the first dracula movie nosferatu the symphony of horror is uh if you've seen probably everybody listening to this will have at least seen a little clip or a picture he's the kind of rat like creeping is that a reference that you know the yeah Werner herzog yeah Werner herzog a, did a version, version of it too um it's actually pretty good isn't it yeah it's it's decent it's decent so that that version actually comes the closest to making dracula into just a creepy crawly monster but ever since the bela lugosi days in i think 1930 or, or right around there dracula has always been played by a matinee idle good looking chiseled clean shaved pretty boy that's just how people expect dracula to be these days it's really not exactly what stoker had in mind even if stoker was being sexual it was a much more intentionally perverse and disgusting mm-hmm. uncanny mm-hmm. it's the right word he used it himself a lot but it's the right word yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah mina says it about jonathan's the first to say it that's right. So let's talk a little bit about the book's structure, because I think it actually has a pretty interesting structure, because it starts with this extended, it's almost like a short story or something like that. And to me, I would say that's the most powerful part of the book. If I had to guess, I'd say, besides Bela Lugosi, the, this book owes its longevity principally to that first section of Jonathan mm, really, going into Transylvania. Really I don't know. Did you guys like the structure of the book? I don't even, I don't even know what to ask about it, but well, by the structure of the book, do you mean the arc or do you mean like the, well, it's kind of divided together, into these three. Uh, it's kind of has this weird three act structure. You got yeah. act one is just this Jonathan Harker goes to Transylvania and has a crazy vampire uncanny adventure. And then act two is very much Brandon's 
invasion literature. It's Dracula uh, tries to take his show on the road and bring it to, to, to London. Act three, they chase him back to Transylvania. And then act three is my boy's adventure story where we're, it's all yeah. about catching the right train and getting there in time and racing the sun and all that kind of stuff. Since Brandon's part two and your part three, can I have part one? Because that was my favorite part. Your part one. Jonathan trapped in Dracula's castle. Got to scale the wall. Having to scale the walls, having to deal with the ladies, yeah, the, the weird sisters. It's our second book in a row with three weird sisters. They even call that? they even call them weird sisters. I think Van Helsing point. calls them yeah, that. He doesn't does, he? yeah, yeah. That first section, I don't know what else to say about the structure besides that the first section's great, and then the other two sections do, I think, suffer by comparison. There, there's merit to the other two sections, I think, but that well, first the first sec- section is just truly horrifying. Yeah, it's uh, suspense carries you through. You know, it drives you forward through that whole section. And then everything else after that's kind of obvious. You know what's going on and nobody else does, and you're waiting for them to put the pieces together. It's interesting because it does have a tension of its own, but it's not the same sort of suspenseful what's going to happen to Jonathan next or what's going to happen to them next because you're not the one, you know, in the Jonathan story... You're the one who doesn't know what's going to happen next in the rest of the novel or for most of the rest of the novel. You see it all coming and the tension is, are they going to be able to put the pieces together? You know, are they going to, when are they going to realize that Mina's being sucked dry by, by Dracula? When are they going to, yeah, yeah. when are things going to stop going so badly for them? <laughs> <laughs> so every unfortunate thing that could possibly happen happens. So right. Poor Lucy. <laughs> Poor Lucy. Yeah. Uh, well, I think for me, the idea of the first section is actually scarier because when I'm out for, we used to live in kind of a country area and I would go for these long walks in the woods and some, and sometimes I'd lose my way and I'd end up coming out onto the road and I'd have to walk through someone else's property. And I always had that thought in the back of my mind. What if I end up on, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre family's house? What if, what if I end yeah. up in some backwoods place where something other or evil is happening and I stumble across it. And that's what happens to Jonathan. And to me, that's just personally speaking, that's a more terrifying idea than the idea of the other or the uncanny coming to us. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, everything about it, it, it's such a good setup because here he is in a strange place. He yeah. barely knows German. People are saying things that are cryptic. A little bit is over the top, but you know, the, they get on that wild carriage ride and you know everything is just... Uncanny is the right word for that That first, if you can call it a short story. You know, he's figuring things out. He's in the dark. He doesn't know what's up. He doesn't know what's going on. He's scared. He's getting more desperate. He realizes he's probably going to die at one point. You know, all, everything just keeps building and mounting, and it's just well done. And I like all the touches of the, the three women appearing in the dust, kind of, in that weird room, and the, mm-hmm. the gothic kind of conventions of the place in the castle that he can't go, and... Um, yep. There's some actual the place in the castle there. where he's safe, right? And then just some stuff that you don't expect, like Dracula's mustache or that poor baby that yeah <laughs> gets fed to that uh, that mother. Oh yeah, and then he's like, "Well, well considering what happened to her child, it was probably for the best." Yeah. <laughs> um, well, he was more concerned. He wasn't concerned about what was going to happen to her. He was concerned that she'd find out what happened to the baby. That would be a worse fate for her, which is sort of almost sweet. Well, it's also one of those weird catch-22s in any horror story. A lot of horror stories have crummy endings because once the monsters come out from behind the curtain... He's not as interesting as when he's you kind of don't know what's going on and you've got that fear of the unknown. And so, of course, the beginning of the story is going to be the most powerful because you're dealing with where am I? What What's this monster? We haven't seen what Dracula is capable of yet, so he's capable of anything. Once the rules are kind of established, I think it, some of the interest of, of any story like that, of the uncanny or the weird, diminishes. A good ending to this kind of story is really hard to do. What about the epistolary form? Did you guys like that? Did you buy it? I love it. I love the whole idea of sifting through their journals. It's a, it presents some challenges to Stoker, and he wasn't quite up to all of them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's one too many scene where someone's like, "I must go on writing," you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like I can't. though the death sleep is overtaking me. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, well, yeah, he's in the he's just like smashed dracula over the head with a shovel or something (laughs) and he's in a dark tunnel and the voices are getting closer and he's he's writing writing about (laughs) i gotta pull up my candlestick and (laughs) write this down people are always saying things like you know i've discovered that writing can really clear one's head so (laughs) i must put these (laughs) yeah 
everybody's got to justify the no lucy <laughs> lucy is in her room and there's a wolf outside all of the the help is poisoned and her mom's dead and she's there in bed with her dead mother and she's she's writing a journal entry yeah. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> that said it, it's you know trying to write the kind of novel he was trying to write using that form was a hard thing to do but i really really still i really like that that form i don't know what it is it's really interesting and compelling maybe it's maybe some of it's just the the thrill you get from reading somebody's secrets or something like that yeah so i don't know but one of the things i loved about sorry to bring this up again but the monster squad was they found not harker's journal not mina's not lucy's they got van helsing's diary right which doesn't appear in in dracula and we don't we don't get we get some it's fragments or something we get some fragments from van helsing but we don't we always wonder as we go through you know what does he know and what does he have and where does it all come from you know yeah. it's sort of like what's behind and part of that's because i think he's protecting the mystique of van helsing but part of me is like man i wonder what what's in van helsing's diary what what does he have to say what does yeah. he learn where's he going when he goes off to to find the necromancer you know. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Is you <laughs> want to hear what happens to Gandalf, but you never get to see it, unless unless the saints preserve us from Peter Jackson doing his version of Gandalf's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. backstory. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I think that you you started seeing some of the limitations of the epistolary style early on. He was willing to play around more with the fragments and stuff that he would get from other sources. And then that just completely disappears by the third act. So it's just all their journals. Yeah. I really like the newspaper clippings and stuff. Yeah, like but that, that just eventually cool. you just get the feeling that Stoker just gave up. Like he couldn't <laughs> right. think of any other way to inter- interweave that back into the novel. Yeah. And, and so. even his choice of who to give the scene to, which is great. I'd say for the first two thirds of the novel, he's really, he's ham fisted sometimes with the stuff we were just making fun of, but he's pretty good about using the form to give us the right point of view at the right time. And that's important. I think it's fun that Dr. Seward gets to tell us so much of the story from his very dry clinical perspective. Um, I think it's interesting that Van Helsing gets to tell us almost none of the story until the very end. And then I do think Harker and Seward, I wish there was just a little bit more differentiation in their voices because I found myself sort of at points being confused about who was I did this I forgot who was telling the story yeah. so I was like oh he's looking at Jonathan Harker and commenting on I him thought this was Harker <laughs> right but it was only really Seward and Harker that I got confused of course obviously he gave Van Helsing that ridiculous accent <laughs> which he even kind of wrote in that ridiculous <laughs> accent a little bit <laughs> And Mina's always, you know... Oh, the goodness the of men. Com- the se- second coming of the Virgin Mary. Right. <laughs> All of her entries just begin like, I'm so thankful for brave, stout-hearted men. <laughs> gentlemen. Oh, true gentlemen. <laughs> we poor ladies, I think she says more than once. <laughs> I've just if had only a- I had a man like Bram Stoker to appreciate my... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> feminine virtue. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get into her a little bit more later. Is there anything else worth saying about the structure of the novel or the epistolary form or anything like that? it it stays pretty compelling all the way through and you know as it changes as it develops it doesn't have the same kind of compelling that it does in the first act Mm -hmm. but given that there was no way he could actually sustain that jonathan harker story for the another page i don't i mean i think he stretched that one out as much as he could i I don't blame him for abandoning it you could argue that he should have just published there maybe given that he was going to do a novel and that he needed to change it up i think he changed it up well and i like having the jonathan stumbles on the other and then follow that up with the other invades and then follow that up with we kick the other's caboose well i i was compelled to keep reading and i read through it was it was candy Let's talk about the good guys. Let's talk about Van Helsing. He's a, I think, influential character in the literature of the uncanny. Pretty much every horror story, especially in the first half of the 20th century, would always have some scientist dude come in just to give all the exposition, mm-hmm. explain everything, know everything. Sherlock Holmes, um, everything. Sherlock Holmes, yeah. everything. People tend to be hit or miss on whether they like Van Helsing or just think he's kind of annoying. One of the critical readings I read said something like, Van Helsing would be a great character if Stoker had any clue how to write dialect. You know, they were just so anno- found his dialect so off-putting that it ruined the character for them. I didn't find it off-putting. It was hard to read sometimes. A little difficult to make sense of. but And I thought it was... Maybe somebody out there, I never got to the bottom of this, can clue me in, but I thought it was really weird. So he's Dutch, right? Yeah. So he's Dutch, but then 
Like he speaks in German instead of... Yeah, I don't know. He said Mein Gott a couple times. and Or Gott in, in Himmel. Oh, yeah, he didn't. Maybe Stoker just didn't know Dutch. The difference between German and Dutch. That's <laughs> entirely possible. <laughs> you would think you might, like, if you're going to write a Dutch character and... Know a little bit about it. Why make him Dutch? Why not just make him German if that's <laughs> right, what you know? Exactly. Yeah. Because he's got to be able to get over to, to and from London quickly. Did you guys like the sort of colorful things about Van? You know, he has him laugh after that funeral. Did you think he was successful in giving I, him those moments? I did. I liked those moments. I thought they worked. I don't have a problem with Van Helsing. The only problem I have is with, you know, some of, I think, problems that we see throughout Stoker, things that are with him. It's not... His that, weakness as a storyteller or as a... Writer. His weakness in characterization or in dialogue. Yeah. What is his weakness in characterization in general? Just about you know, given the our group of fearless vampire hunters, um, it's just that everybody's so two dimensional, which is fine. I mean, you can have a boys' adventure story with pretty two dimensional characters. I mean, there's a sense in which our uh, Tolkien's characters are sort of similarly two dimensional, but what he doesn't do is tell you over and over how two-dimensional they are through dialogue we don't have you know 10 pages of how awesome mina is and how everybody thinks mina is the most perfect and you know it's just like oh please like and we never actually see much of mina's virtue except for when she except for the mind of a man part we see that you know, yeah. we do get to see that because she has that you know mind of a man quality when she comes up with a greater creative idea but we don't see any of the other feminine virtues on display. We just get told, yeah. you know, that as soon as Van Helsing sees her, you know, he knows that she's yeah. the picture of feminine virtue and beautiful get, in every way. And and we just get all this exposition. And you get and it said with a lot of Then he pathos. digs his heels yeah. in and just kind of keeps yeah. churning his exposition of just badly done, I think. Which isn't to say that it's bad that we have a a strong, virtuous female damsel in distress at the heart of the novel in any way. It's just that he didn't play that so well. Mm-hmm. And there are things about how he played Van Helsing that he didn't do so well or any of the other characters, you know. Well, Van Helsing is the rankest defender as far as uh, immediately sentimentalizing Mina to like the moon and just meeting her one time. And then, you know, she's this goddess that... If he's trying to play into just the way that you want to play into the body and the blood, the crucifix, whatever, then he's trying to play into the Virgin Mary. I would argue that Mina as a conception is 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 sound. Because if you're going to write a story about a thief, you want to read the story about the thief robbing Fort Knox. You know, you want to read about them going after the big game. And Mina for Dracula, a defiler of all that is good. You know, to have her be this holy kind of perfect exemplar of all Victorian virtue. I don't really have a problem with that. No. In fact, I kind of like it. And it's one of the things I responded to as a kid is that, you know, that they're all protecting this uh, wonderful lady. But it could have been done a little with a little more subtlety and uh, artfulness, perhaps. Without the over the top cheesiness about with them all holding her hands and crying and. Them laying their heads on her chest and weeping, and she's more the weeping everybody's and, yeah, mother, and yeah, more exclamations about and... how virtuous and beautiful she is. It's very sentimental and Dickensian in that way. Yeah, it is. It's just over the top cheesy. It, it's it made me cheesiness. think of Dickens' heroines are often kind of like that, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, this, when anyone talks about sentimentality, the scene I think of is where the chimney sweep dies in Bleak House, and as he's dying, I think I may have mentioned this before. I think you did, but mentioned it. Again. He's saying. Uh, he would, he'll say like, and now he took his last breath, and then he starts to quote the Lord's Prayer. Dickens does like right. in between lines, "Thy will be done." Chimney boy, uh, chimney Joe, whatever his name is, looked up with a tear in his eye and said, "Aren't you a good lady?" Thy will be done. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just so wow. cheesy. And so you can see the same thing here with uh, the men all just exuding about how wonderful she is. Well, mm. I mean. It's a really powerful concept. You have a beautiful, vulnerable, virtuous woman, and then you have this band of dudes, and she's being preyed upon by pure evil, and Mm -hmm. you have this band of dudes that are going to do something about Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, they're going up against centuries-old evil, and 
they don't care. It's the right thing to do. They've got to protect their men. They're made to protect, and that's what they're going to do. And so that in itself, you know, being the heart of the the story is really strong. Mm-hmm. And and it does lend effectiveness to a lot of the story to the scene. You know, the the scene where she is defiled. Yeah. wouldn't be effective unless he had in some sense. He, sure, it's cheesy the way he does it, but you do understand and feel that something very pure is being hurt in an unspeakable way yeah. when that happens. There, I think there, there, had, there are ways that he could have been made to feel it more. Right. But, but the, yeah, that concept is strong, and that yeah. is why that scene is still so powerful. Yeah, it could have been more artfully done. Yeah. But, I mean, even Dickens has really good things with that he does with characters even though he's over the top a lot of the times too and so guys who are strong on plot but weak in character still do good things Mm -hmm. is there somebody here Yeah. The doors are locked, right? <laughs> so for those of you who are uh, just, just tuning in, we're actually recording this. It is midnight oh, 07. Go, I saw something go by the window. I... It's midnight 07 right now. We're in a room. All the other lights in the building are out. And it looked like something just went by the window, folks. So but when uh, I opened the the door there was nothing there right so, when jake opened the door there was nothing there he peered into the blackness we will, uh, keep you posted <laughs> we'll keep you posted um this has become a real life horror right, story. I'm, I'm not making any of that up um <laughs> we can only hope that we're virtuous enough to um <laughs> which one of us is mina in this scenario <laughs> yikes what were you saying about Dickens and uh, something? A plot. Uh, some writers are really good at. Yeah, plot. they're really strong on plot, and s- their characters will become flat and two dimensional. <laughs> Keep looking at the window now. I can't stop. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I wish I could look at the window, but my back's to it. <laughs> You'll be the first to die. I'm going to be Quincy, of right. course. Yeah, yeah, the to die. <laughs> oh well. I wouldn't rather had. You know, I could think of worse ways to die. What else, whatever he says. Right. <laughs> he doesn't say that. I could think of worse ways to die. Right. It was my honor, little Philly, or right. whatever. My Crap. subconscious yeah. guilt is manifesting itself right. visually outside of our window. That is really creepy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of something just going by that window is like what it perfect. Like. While mean, we're talking about Dracula. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> people that are strong on so plot. Strong on plot. <laughs> They'll often be weak on character, but they, they'll still have good things to say and good things that they'll do with their stories. Stoker could have, for instance, given us a couple scenes that would really give us a strong idea of why Mina's so virtuous. Like you said, Jake, we don't really have that. I think he does an okay job with her narrative voice being sweet and likable. I mean, she can be a little cheesy at times, but... Yeah, what my, what I was go, where I was going to go was uh, Walter Scott. Mm. It's very similar in the fact that it's all very two-dimensional in their virtues and their morals. And all the men are either very good or they're very bad. And they're the kind of men who are predators and they're the kind of men who are knights in armor. And you get the same sense here. I mean, all three of her uh, Lucy, Lucy suitors, suitors are like the best men in the world. And so every every man who comes in is the best man who ever existed. And so they're all very manly. And so, yeah, his blood's going to be vital blood because he's a real man. And then, oh, it's not just him. It's not just Arthur whose blood is vital. The Quincy's blood is very vital, too. He's the <laughs> he's like the man. And then, oh, no, Dr. Seward. He's also like, whoa, he's a man, too. And it's like this. So. And then Helsing. Yeah. Doesn't he give blood? So there's a little bit of fakeness about it. But since the world he's building is full of this, <laughs> it's believable, actually. Yeah. Just like Dickens' worlds are believable, even though they're sometimes really silly. Right. So... I bought it as a kid, and I still bought it. I bought it the, now. I mean, it didn't, uh, it didn't. It only bothers me when I'm trying to be analytical about it. But when you're actually in the story, it works. Just fine. there's one too many scene of them like crowding around and hugging each other and talking about how great they all are. Um, <laughs> you forgive it. My favorite part is when all these super smart people who are going to be steps ahead oh, of yeah. Dracula don't realize that Renfield's a threat, and then are like sending Mina up to the 
room and keeping her out of things and congratulating themselves. Every page, every paragraph, patting themselves on the back. Like, meanwhile, everything about Mina is suddenly she's like growing ill and weak and faint, and she's got a scarf around her neck. You know, like (laughs) (laughs) her teeth are protruding just a little bit more. How many times can they leave Lucy alone? Did you get the contrast between Lucy and Mina is interesting or asking the question perhaps of whether there is one. Did did Stoker intend for Lucy to deserve her fate somehow? That's interesting. Um so you mean she's a little sillier? Well, she's sillier, she's uh, perhaps more beautiful. I mean, I get the impression that, that Mina would be the one with the that wore glasses, you know, at the beginning of the movie and then halfway through she'd probably take them off and be a total babe, but you know, she's Mina's the nerd and Lucy's like the classically beautiful one in my mind at least. It's kind so of like know, Elizabeth and Jane. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. With Jane's good Virtue. More like Elizabeth and Lydia, though, maybe like Lucy's kind of yeah, flirtatious. That, and... she's, but she's not really like, she's not, she's simpler and she's not as mature as Mina. And I think you're supposed to see that because Mina's the one who has this journal and she's the right fit for Jonathan Harker and she's his helper and she has interesting things to say about feminists. Yeah. But at the same time, Lucy's best friends with Mina. Yeah our heroine and she is the the woman that our virtuous supporting cast is fixated on and trying to yeah. marry so i don't think lucy can, or mina lucy is yeah, yeah lucy, trying yeah. to and 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 those, those weird that weird section with that old sailor man yeah <laughs> that i can hardly understand where he said <laughs> i remember that now i was just like what in the world what is, going, is on? going on and why something about a gravestone and a guy who committed suicide. the guy to carry the gravestone as a testament to heaven. but you kind of get that it's like important later on in the novel because did you catch that does it <laughs> Yeah, because Explain it to us. <laughs> there's a section where Van Helsing realizes, or maybe Mina realizes, that the whole reason Dracula could take advantage of Lucy there on that bench was because it was by the unhallowed grave of the suicide. <sighs> oh, yeah. yeah. I did always wonder how Dracula had to got invited in, because he makes such a big to-do of Renfield being the one that invites Dracula in to, uh, you know, yeah. over the threshold to take Lucy or to take Mina. So I don't know why this suicide is grave because apparently it has to be unhallowed, but still somehow I never got the whole, what he could rest in. Yeah. The rules were, were weird. Like I wasn't sure if they had destroyed his last resting place, would he have just been like up a crap Creek? You know, like would he have, what would he have done? I I just think he would have had nowhere to run and nowhere to, to sleep. Right. I, th- I did get the feeling that he had to, he was required. To, well, he certainly there was a big part of the novel is him spreading his resting places all over the place. Um, but my only point in bringing up the old but, sailor man was simply that in that scene, you obviously have Lucy as like the belle of the ball, the prom queen, and Mina's like her nerdy friend that all the, all the old people want to like touch Lucy and be with Lucy and talk to Lucy. Yeah. And, you know, Mina's just like... You know, she's the one that's wearing glasses in the movie, in my movie, in my head, at least. Yeah, my sense was that Lucy is the beautiful but still virtuous good woman who all these men love. Mina is... But but everywhere Mina goes, everybody can see her virtue on yeah. her face and in her complexion and in her bearing and her yeah. beauty is radiant. So I, I don't know that, I just don't know that I'm buying. Well, they say, this. they say things like she's pretty though. I mean, I don't know. I just imagine Lucy as being the classically beautiful one, I guess. Yeah, well, I okay. Pe- so well, I imagine Lucy as a Mina. blonde and, yeah. and uh, Mina as a brunette, which they always are in the movies, by yeah. the way. Yeah. People, nobody hates Mina. Right. And nobody think, I don't think that you're supposed to get the sense that Lucy deserves what happens to her. Well, that's just the, one of the obvious Freudian readings that you always hear is Lucy uh, has these three suitors and she's obviously got these desires that are, you know, bigger than what are allowed her as a woman at the time. Then she has all these guys give blood to her, which is kind of this weird thing. And Van Helsing even makes a joke out of it when, uh, you know, poor Arthur is like, you know, I'm so glad that I could do, you know be the one and then van helsing you know it's almost like i was married to her and then van helsing's like yeah she's good job arthur actually everybody was married to her by that logic idiot wasn't that what causes king laugh to come yeah that's what causes king laugh to come (laughs) (laughs) and king laugh when he come he come (laughs) van helsing almost sounds jamaican in that (laughs) 
Oh, King Laugh. Here you come. Here you come. Uh, King Laugh, yes. One of my favorite characters. <laughs> so you guys just think that's dumb and you reject that theory. I can see how it's a theory that fits like Francis Ford Coppola's version of Dracula, <laughs> sure. but if you're actually reading the novel as Lucy is presented, she's not presented as some bimbo right. <laughs> with a bunch of men. I mean, she is pretty she obnoxious deals- when she's talking about her three suitors. That's the only evidence you'd have for it is her just being like, to get three engagements in one day. That feels a little bimbo to me. Yeah. Maybe, well, but-, but what would you expect a, a girl to say? to her best friend in a letter when she's been hoping for you know one guy to propose to her and her life is centered around when she's going to get married and who she's going to get married to and all of a sudden have what what else she going to write about and how's she not going to say it in a way that's not sort of gushing and maybe a little bit proud yeah but i don't i I don't even think it comes across all that poorly and i think that at least by her account she seems to handle those other two guys with honor mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I, feel appropriately I, I bad for possibly leading them on. I don't, yeah. maybe she's just a, a bit of a flirt, but I, you know, I was just playing the modern Freudian critics advocate there. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't really agree with that. I mean, I see what they're trying to do with it. I just think, and why? Well, and they would read so much into Mina talking about the new woman, that one little section, and say that she's repressed, too, and she wants to break out of societal conventions, and that's just nowhere in the novel, but they do say that. She's always gushing about societal conventions. She's just several, like, oh, thank heaven for societal conventions. Yeah, and they would say, well, of course she would. She's trying to... Trying to fit in, trying to be a good, yeah. meek little wife and, and everything. And subconscious. Right. She's less mature, and you get the sense that she doesn't necessarily deserve it, but that Dracula chooses her because he chooses Mina to get revenge, right? Yeah. And that's his undoing. His his animal nature takes over, and his child brain allows his own destruction because he chooses the wrong woman. He chose Lucy because he knew that she was prey. It was opportunistic, right? Yeah. Uh, my understanding is she got up and happened to sleepwalk herself to yeah. a place where she was vulnerable. Yeah. Next to the unhallowed grave. and But you get the picture later on that Dracula, he's the kind that watches and he knows who he's after. Because you get that scene where he's watching that woman in the carriage. Yeah, yeah, where, right. when Jonathan and Mina just yeah. encounter him. And... So he, he's very careful about who he chooses and the prey that he chooses. He goes for the beautiful woman who could eventually be one of his brides. Mm-hmm. And so Lucy's only failing is that she happened to be beautiful and young and immature and... In the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, yeah it would have been none some other girl things. in Whitby, if not her. Yeah, none of those things are like allow for this sort of reading where she is. Bram Stoker is punishing her right. in some way for being the young Lydia. But what about the phallic implications of her fiancé driving a stake through her heart when she tries to express herself as a liberated woman? Brandon? <laughs> not everything... <laughs> <laughs> Everything's possessed. <laughs> we're now going to drive a stake into series heart. Okay, so we're having some interesting uh well uncanny things happen. Yeah. I'm sure Stoker didn't come up with a wooden stake. No, he didn't. Um no. so uh that it's phallic, I don't Yeah. I mean, I don't not not it. not everything's a phallic symbol. Right. Cigar. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah, exactly. That's the, I was trying to that's the line I was trying to think of. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Sometimes a steak is just a steak, and you could see pretty much anything phallically if you wanted to. So yeah, Freudian psychology, it allows you to talk about the uncanny, and it allows you to talk about the return of the repressed and all these things that it make, you know, as Christians, we realize that we want to not see our sin. And mm-hmm. So yeah, that's true. But then also, you, at some point, you have to just realize that Freud was a pervert, mm-hmm. and... <laughs> Yeah. A lot of the stuff he talked about was because he was fixated on these perversions, and so everything yeah, I mean, became on. phallic. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you want to see everything that way, sure. Cool. Oedipus complex, <laughs> I mean, yeah. But sometimes it's just a stake you're driving into the heart of a monster to kill it. Right. Because that's the juju that you have to go through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every monster's got its juju. And then you got to cut off their heads and stuff garlic in their mouths. They, they hate the sh- uh, chivalry that is there where they explain that it needs to be Arthur because he needs to be the one to set her free, right? To give her rest. It's his right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's his right. And there's nothing sexual about it. He's putting her at rest because she's 
it's the last virtuous, noble act that he can perform for yeah. the woman that he loves. So mm-hmm. there's no reason to read it sexually. Sure, you could. You could also read it. I'm sure you could read it as a Marxist oh, something. Yeah. Or you could read it as... Like I referenced earlier, that yeah, scene where Jonathan cuts Dracula in that one house where he stabs him with his knife and then all the money comes out. I've read, I've seen like whole papers about the Marxist and that's the wonders implications of, of that. That's one of the wonders of the modern academy is that you can read anything pretty much any way you want to. Right. And make it sound pretty fancy with the right words and the right set terms. I guess that's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Words and terms. <laughs> but... Uh, but yeah, why? Why not just take it on face value? He's telling you that this is a shiv- chivalric chivalric world where the men protect the women and the women appreciate being protected. And I liked that as a kid, and I still liked that as an adult reading the novel. And to um, be honest, I think it's kind of true. Yeah, so it's not it's not true. If there, at all if there were vampires attacking right now, I'm sure my wife would be very grateful for me going out and fighting the vampire and not making her go along. <laughs> right. <laughs> would hope <laughs> she wouldn't want to throw on her leather suit and go out and fight it with me I, I, that's what i responded to as a kid and that's kind of what i still respond to I, I like i like these dudes just taking responsibility for well there's a monster that's threatening our women so uh i guess we got to do something about it <laughs> um I, I i do like i think probably the most successful two-dimensional characterizations are actually just the three dudes i like i like them as you got your laconic american stereotype guy that's how many times does stoker use the word laconic pretty much any time he talks it's like he said laconically (laughs) she just called him laconic right (laughs) and he's always saying things like hey there little Little missy little missy (laughs) just like stoker obviously had never met an american maybe didn't know where america was on the map Um. (laughs) but he sure did know the pervasive stereotype he sure did that somehow predated well, you said oh. something while you were reading it, Jake, that I thought was inter- I mean, kind of fun, which is that it's just fun to see that those stereotypes go back that far. Yeah. You know, John didn't Wayne didn't invent the, the Western stereotype. It or was Roy a, Rogers. Or Roy Rogers, yeah. Yeah, Texas was known for that way back in 1890-something. <laughs> yep. Good job, Brandon. Quincy is a Texan, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah he is. Texan. Yeah. So how did you because feel? Because of course he is. How did you feel about Quincy? How did you did you feel that he expressed your great state? Uh, oh, yeah. Did it honor? Sure. <laughs> how about that scene where he fires his gun through the window <laughs> and the bullet ricochets around? <laughs> I was trying to shoot the bat. Yeah, There's a bat up there. <laughs> I saw that there bat. I was going to shoot it. <laughs> he spends like half the novel going outside. Like <laughs> he saw a bat out there. It's just, it's just Quincy shooting the bats again. <laughs> Need. Killing. <laughs> Ever since this whole business started, why I've developed you, a bit of a distaste all, yeah. for bats. <laughs> all you fancy London boys want to do is talk. <laughs> I'm gonna go kill some bats. <laughs> you get the feeling he's gonna go through life anytime he sees a bat, just <laughs> and then he's the one who nice knowing your bats. That's what he should have killed said after he killed Dracula. Should have been shooting gypsies all along. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of stereotypes, I really like that random Jewish stereotype that shows up at the end where it's like, uh, with much counting of gold and <laughs> wearing a fez. It's just like, how much? <laughs> I guess I should ask, did you guys think the novel was uh, like xenophobic or... everything but white London phobic, if you're going to make it phobic. I... Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd be with the modern critics there. I'm sure they say it's xenophobic, and I'd say, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> Phobic? Uh, it's, all, it's a novel all about how British gentlemen are awesome and everyone else sucks. Like All that's out there is monsters and wolves and cowering gypsies and gypsies are gonna stab you (laughs) and not tell you there's a vampire in the castle (laughs) don't don't. Don't go to the castle there's a vampire cross themselves and (laughs) give the guard themselves from the evil eye and make subtle hints take this it will protect you how about you say take this it will protect you from the vampire (laughs) (laughs) what what (laughs) did you think the novel was classist as long as we're uh as long as we're checking off these modern I thought it was classophobic. Was it classophobic? <laughs> Everything's phobic. But you got a lot of scenes, especially in the, la- the last third, where they like have to deal with like coachmen. It, it's and... a good thing that we have an aristocrat. Right. <laughs> Lord <laughs> Goldeming. All class problems can be solved with beer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's really true. It's just like they have to get everyone drunk. He was just thirsty. Which is, I took it to just mean that they wanted him to buy him a drink, right? Every time right, yeah, yeah. somebody who was trying to get information out of yeah. was thirsty. Well, it just turned out he was thirsty. Right. It's a good thing I'm... Oh, boy, yeah. Those guys that the Renfield attacks, right? They were just... You just buy them a drink and they're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're a good old chap now. <laughs> I mean, I guess the ship's the the captain of the Demeter was a decent fellow, and uh, yeah, that story was nice. That was I a mean, cool little, a little set piece that you don't expect. I think uh, I, I wish Stoker would have done an even more evocative job of that. But that's a cool little story that you don't expect. Um, that's the ship. It's going imaginative. Down. It's yeah. not what. And there's a creepy idea of being stuck on a ship and everyone's throwing themselves over the board. There's a little of the Mary Celeste in there, if you know that, or unexplained story. Look it up on Wikipedia, folks. The only thing I'd say is, if there is classism and racism or whatever, it comes from maybe his weakness as a writer, whatever you want to see it as, but just the fact that everything is very two dimensional. Right. And so when the world's two dimensional like that, everything is two dimensional. The gypsies are. So types. it's not like yeah, it's not like he's intentionally a racist it's just everything even technically even the way that he presents the men they're all the same right, right? they're basically all There's the nothing same dude. different about any of them they had quincy has a different accent yeah. yeah but quincy is arthur is dr seward is we have all the men that yeah. we all the men that we meet are righteous dudes who are heroes all of the women are virtuous women and then there's Dracula, who's evil, and then there are these like other people that you run across. And but then you get these glim- glimpses of a little bit more depth with him because you have that section where Mina wants them to have sympathy on Dracula. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And free him. She's happy that, that she sees a, a little glimpse of like his soul being at peace after they. Stab yeah, that was the a crap surprising. Well, like what you were saying with the ship and getting the captain of that. It was a surprising moment of depth in a fairly flat moral world of the story. So she's wondering, with even as depraved as he was, was there still something about Dracula that could be saved? Right. Basically. And of course, modern versions have taken that and run with it. And Dracula is pretty much always the anti-hero, hero, but hero of the story. And then actually in a brilliant little touch at the end, it's Mina who's writing about his death when they finally kill him, right? Mm-hmm. And so she's the one who says that she thought maybe for a moment there was like a look of peace on his face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And you don't know if that's going back to her wanting to see it. So it's, or if it actually was a moment of peace. I'm not sure that Stoker was subtle enough to have it be unintentional. <laughs> right. Probably there was a look of peace on his face. Right. That's how I took it. Yeah. I don't know why, considering the fact that he was sounded like an awful guy even before he was a vampire. But um, well, let's talk about our uh, eponymous character himself, Dracula. What did you guys? I guess I'll just start start by ask, opening up the floor a little bit. Obviously, he's a really iconic monster. Uh, what were your expectations of him, and did he meet them? I think I expected uh, him to not have a mustache. Yeah. <laughs> I expected him to be more seductive. I expected him to be less clumsy and more... So the way I came to the book, but then also the way that what Stoker says about him versus how he things unfold and play out, don't quite meet up. And he tries to mediate that with Van Helsing giving an explanation about his child brain. But it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. I just... I expected him... I don't know, maybe a Moriarty, like a... More cunning... Much more cunning, and um, he's pretty animalistic. Yeah, although he's well spoken at the beginning of the novel when he's kind of in his old that Dracula, form. Dracula over in Transylvania. I want to see more of that Dracula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I didn't think it was just the demystification of no. Now we've got wrapped our heads around who he is, and so now he's not as potent because we know his limitations. I just felt like it turned out he was sort of foolish and his big speeches at the end near the end are kind of clunky yeah it just wasn't he didn't come off as i'm not sure you want to you want to feel like everything is converging like you have this century or millennia old centuries old or millennia old force of evil and darkness that has like had a reign of terror over you know romania and you you want to feel like all of that the weight of that has finally met its match in time and God's providence and 
the right people, the right mix of people, and the, just the right amount of good fortune or good luck. It didn't quite live up to to that. I mean, it did. I mean, that's that I'd, is what I put it at about eighty <laughs> percent. I don't know. I'd say like it almost lives up to it. It's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing that the two big things are the fact that she are the hypnotism, mm-hmm. and the, and he's asleep on a boat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's just... it. Like that's that's what it comes down to. Yeah, you kind of expect him to have one more ace up his sleeve when yeah. he's doing the whole boat thing. But yeah, you no. were hoping for like they would get to the wagon and open it, and he wasn't there or something. Right. And yeah, uh, why, although he was, why couldn't we have even made it back to the castle and had those showdown be there? Or I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that that's the right answer. I don't know what the right answer is. It's just like anticlimactic is all. If I was writing the movie, they would be two seconds too late, the sun would go down, Dracula would pop out, he'd be all-powerful, and then we'd get this awesome climax where everything's at stake. He's at full capacity. He would be the one who kills Quincy. He'd be the one that kills Quincy. But as it is, he's laying there and he's... But Quincy would, in the process, do something that made him vulnerable, made Dracula exposed or vulnerable for just the one instant. Yeah. You know... Because what's believable is that his driving passion and lust would be his weakness, and that mm-hmm. would cause him to be... Right. He sees Mina over on the mountain, and yeah. he exposes himself by going after her, let's say. That's, yeah. That'd be maybe the cheesy... I mean, maybe that's cheesy, but that's one way you could take it. Yeah, he sees Jonathan there, and... He's like, I don't like you, dude. I'm gonna... I'm gonna do this right in front of your face. Right. Yeah, it gets the Harry Potter weakness of everything comes down to the fact that the villain has hidden important things in easy-to-find places. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, guess what? We can go destroy them. I've never heard a better <laughs> explanation or... Uh, I've never heard a better exposition of the, the weakness of Harry Potter. <laughs> well done, sir. Uh, yeah, I just... I think you want... You want one more great set piece. You want to pay off. Yeah. You want it to pay off. You want your investment to pay off. I think you've gotten like a handful of great... The whole beginning is a good set piece then the lucy staking lucy is a good set piece and then him uh invading mina's uh, uh bedroom is a good set piece um the demeter is a good set piece there are these horror you know action scenes or whatever you want to call them they're the big climactic moments in the story and you want one more of those at the end mm-hmm. for obvious reasons because that's how stories are supposed to work but you don't get it and it just feels kind of anticlimactic although that may just be stoker's writing failing us like i could see you making a really cool scene out of them fighting them their way through the gypsies and the danger of that and the heroism of that but he doesn't quite pull it off yeah i mean the disappointment is the fact that the sun does not set and you don't have at least one last showdown they never really have a showdown with him right at the very least maybe i mean maybe in stoke in Stoker's mind, what he's done is he's built up Dracula's all-powerfulness after sundown that the only way that it's going to happen, all the tension is can they beat mm-hmm. sundown. Yeah. But um, it, it just does have that a little bit. It, a little bit, but it, it just doesn't quite do it for me. Well, yeah. And to be fair, we're talking about this 100 years or more after the book was written, and uh, there's been a we lot of... a lot to draw on. We have a lot to draw on, and we're imagining how Steven Spielberg would do this. You know, we're imagining the big Hollywood climax that would go for 20 minutes and be this great action scene. Stoker's readers probably didn't need that. This was probably... I mean, we're desensitized a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I won't say that Stoker couldn't have done it better, but I will defend him a little bit. This was probably plenty exciting for a lot of people at the time. Yeah, I mean, the time bomb was ticking and it does get to one, right? Yeah. Because he's smirking because he sees the sun about to go down right as, what is it, the kabuchi knife? Or right, yeah. It is. <laughs> Cuts his throat. Right. He's actually smiling when they pry the lid off the coffin or whatever. Yeah. I was also a little bit unclear on the rules there. They yeah, killed him with how did, knives. How did they kill him with a knife? That was weird. I think maybe because it was day. But why didn't they just wait till day and kill Lucy with knives? <laughs> was the knife somehow hallowed? <laughs> or maybe it was because he's centuries old, so he's going to immediately, the minute you turn him mortal, he's going to turn into dust, whereas anybody else is going to maintain their body and going to need much more to do. Because it's a cool image that you cut his head off and the other guy plunges the knife in his chest. Yeah, I mean, that would be pretty satisfying to do. Just didn't fit within the rules or something. Well, I got the sense that 
he couldn't keep track of all the rules anyways. Yeah. Well, there's so many rules. I mean, poor Dracula. Garlic stops him, running water. He has to wait. I mean, yeah, you do <laughs> you have know to. I can't come in the boat. Why don't ask? <laughs> <laughs> there's that whole scene where they have to deal with that. It's so weird to have that in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, why? you know, Stoker has to create Renfield to get around the problem of Dracula can't enter a place where he's not invited. Here's an idea. Just don't have that rule, you know? Yeah. I actually think Renfield's pretty successful. And that's a, but that's a, that's a classic. I love that rule though. actually for vampire. That's my favorite vampire story rule, and it's a good allegorical kind of you know. In, don't invite the sinful thing in. Didn't, so uh, Dracula made uh, made Jonathan like say that he entered Dracula's castle of his own free will or something weird like he says enter of your own free will and try and leave some of the happiness that you is his very formal formula that he says but he's like standing in the I remember because he doesn't cross the threshold he he makes it he stands right there in the doorway and blocks the doorway yeah as he and he doesn't cross the threshold and then Jonathan comes in after he has his little uh, sort of scripted sounding thing and that is fun the idea that you have to let a vampire in let yourself into the vampire isn't something that stoker plays around with all that much but and obviously it's intrigued lots of people who have like wanted to turn up the eroticism but i think it's also it it makes for good uh allegory did you think dracula did you guys think that dracula as a character and the book in general was actually scary at any part yeah the first part i thought the first part was scary and there was one point oh where oh where mina was relating maybe the uh first encounter with dracula uh, she was relating it as a dream with mm-hmm. uh, the glowing red eyes hovering over her in darkness and that made me think of a recurring dream slash nightmare i had as a kid so that was maybe more just the power of the simple imagery or maybe it was just what i brought to it but let me say something to that we've been making a lot of fun of stoker for his clunkiness in a lot of different ways but one thing that stoker perhaps intentionally perhaps just by being bad allows you is he allows you to bring a lot of whatever scares you to it by and maybe it's art on stoker's part or maybe it's just him not being sophisticated enough to come up with you know his own ideas but the fact that he leaves things so vague and so simple adds to the potency of the story i think um and i think that's often true of these kinds of stories that you can complain all you want about the two-dimensional characters and stuff but in the end, the, the very two-dimensionality of the descriptions of the characters of everything actually allows you, in a weird way, even though it can feel clunky, even though it can feel off-putting, even though it can make for a less satisfying literary experience, sometimes it'll, it'll be this weird kind of catch-22 where it will, you know, some of the literary qualities that you might want aren't there, but the fact that they're not there actually allows the novel to do some other things, to, to, to be primal in a way that, for example, if all these characters were really fleshed out psychologically real, then you, put yourself or you wouldn't be able else. to put yourself. I mean, the nice thing about Mina, as clunky of a character as she is, is that you can just imagine your own version of what the prettiest, <laughs> most virtuous girl looks like and you can just plunk her in there plug her in or you can just let her be your mom or you can just let her be your mom and because there's nothing to jonathan you can just be jonathan you know you could you could make the same case about the rules Mm -hmm. about how you can't quite get a grasp on what the rules are and what they're not and are they religious or are they superstitious like what's garlic got to do with crucifixes and you know you could say that that's stoker trying to drawn a whole bunch of sources you could say that stoker being confused himself for not quite knowing what's going on or you could say everybody's just sort of figuring this out and here are what van helsing thinks are the rules and this sort of just adds to that unknown mysterious quality of the world of the undead and the and the super supernatural all you know is it it all operates on different rules than you're accustomed to and you can only hope that you got a few of them right hopefully they got enough of them right that he's actually dead at the end i actually had never noticed the part about van helsing saying that he actually in going from alive to dead had lost some of his memory i actually thought that was kind of a cool touch that mm-hmm. dracula is relearning 
and has been relearning. Now, I wondered why it took Dracula like 500 years or however much, you know, and he was still sucking this bad at his plan, no pun intended. There was one point where it seemed like he, he could go to sleep for like 100 or 200 years or 500 years. That's what they were worried about with Mina, because if he got away and managed to hide out somewhere, he could just wait and her whole life out, and then she's his bride and once she dies, and she that was the threat there. Yeah. Anyhow, I, I got the sense from that that it could be that he just woke up from a 200-year sleep or 300-year sleep or something like that. Yeah. So is Romania just full of a bunch of vampires? <laughs> no, I thought that the way I read it was that Dracula was something kind of special, probably the progenitor of all vampires because he'd done all this black magic and stuff like he seemed to but be. what about all his victims? Would they not become? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. We only had the three beautiful brides. Um, yeah. What about the babies? Well, I just kind of assume they just got eaten. We're not really clear on what... Does he have to do his blood baptism thing in order for you to actually turn? I thought maybe he kind of did. I thought maybe he had to give you some of his blood. I don't know. No, I thought that it said <clears throat> that that would just make it go quicker or expedite the... Expedite the process. Expedite the process. <laughs> We're going to expedite this process for you, ma'am. <laughs> Put you on the fast track. <laughs> what I, I no, I think you're right, yeah. <laughs> What about the brides of Dracula? I think Jake has a point when he's saying that like part of the terror of the rules is the unknown quality to them. Mm-hmm. The scariest Dracula is the Dracula at the beginning of the novel before he, we find out he has a child brain and his animal passions can lead to his downfall so easily. So his brides, they have some of the scarier moments in the novel. Where they're swarming around them in the snowstorm. And yeah, that's, to get that's them a to good scene. The circle. And they always kind of have this ghostly kind of, you know, they appear out of the dust. They're just more ethereal or whatever the bad word is for ethereal. They're yeah. negative ethereal. They're more ghostly and kind of creepy and uh, maybe just more scary for me because I'm a dude. So I'd be their prey. Well, you'd be their prey and they would seduce you. Yeah. I mean, Jonathan wanted it. That yeah. was what was... That's the most explicitly sexual scene. It is. Where he's it like, is. And it's part of what he wants to protect Mina from. When he says, here it is, we should have total trust between us. So here it is, but don't read it. Yeah. You don't want to read it. Right. <laughs> and I think I think that's a, a big part of it, that feeling that in that moment he was... Tempted. He was tempted and he knew it. Yeah. And if Dracula hadn't saved him, he would have. It is interesting. Been a sub husband, I guess. A sub husband. <laughs> He's like a third level down <laughs> from Dracula. <laughs> Dracula. Then you got the brides. Then you got their husbands. Their husbands and his brides. And then he can start his own bride dumb. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds kind of cool. I guess get some babes, vampirize them. <laughs> That's awesome. It's not a bad living or not living, uh, whatever you know, vampires called living. Yeah, I thought they were. I thought they were pretty well done in this reading. They're voluptuous in just the right measure, and and there's something profane about them that's differently profane about Dracula. I don't know how to parse that without being weird, but it's there and it's interesting. So, in summation, I guess I should just ask: This was our first pot butt boiler, first pure horror story, first thing that's uh, of questionable. It's questionable whether it should be in the canon or not. What'd you guys? What'd you guys think? Did you like it? Would you recommend people read it? Do you think it should be in the canon or shouldn't be in the can? You know, the canon. I don't know. It's a fun read. It's a nice little adventure story with you know some iconic, a lot of iconic imagery. But as far as is the canon, what what defines the canon? I don't know what defines the canon, Brandon. <laughs> I mean, if if it's something like uh, Pride and Prejudice or East of Eden or yeah. Huckleberry Finn, this is certainly not in that class. No, it's I not. I think there are two ways of seeing the canon. One is it's those books that have influenced, whether or not we want them to have influenced literature. <laughs> the other way is it's the books that if you could have them continue to influence they would continue to influence literature Hmm. so no question about the first one and then i would say no to the second one yeah if i had a time capsule where i was throwing a bunch of novels in for kids a thousand years from now i don't think this would make it in unless it was a really big capsule (laughs) (laughs) 
there's a lot of books I'd put in that time capsule before Dracula. But uh, perhaps uh, sentiment, you know, perhaps I'm a sentimental old fool, but I still uh, really liked it. And I would give a copy to young Nathan and say, eat your dark little heart out, my boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to discourage my kids from reading it. If you're going to read one vampire novel, Dracula is the one. How about that? I can sign on to that. Yeah. If you're going to read zero vampire novels, that's also probably okay. Probably for the best. Well. (laughs) And insane. And insane. Do I give you the last word? I can decide in the editing. Today's episode was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It was performed by Nathan Alberson, Jake Menskill, and Brandon Chastfiend. <laughs> you can go to gorehornmedia.com for more horrifying content. And be sure to rate us highly on iTunes. Not really Gorehorn Media, it's warhornmedia.com. Okay. <laughs>